Turn with me in your copies of God's Word, if you would, to Paul's second epistle to the church of believers at Corinth, 2 Corinthians. Together we'll read um, all of chapter 1, but we'll focus on the ending part, verses 12 through the beginning of chapter 2. Second Corinthians, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an, epistle, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we've set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. And here begins our focus for tonight. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We've done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. 
He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So far the reading of God's holy and inspired and infallible word. May he add his blessing to it tonight as we consider it together. Why don't we pray and ask for his blessing on this time. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, Lord, we pray that you would work in us now by your word that we've just read. Lord, show us Christ. Draw us to the cross and do this by your Holy Spirit. Lord, may your Holy Spirit flow through this time, through this man who now stands here. And may we all be encouraged as you receive the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, when a misunderstanding takes its toll on a group of people, it comes as a blessed relief, doesn't it? An encouragement, a strengthening quality when even our opponents can validate our trustworthiness and our good character. There's a strengthening quality that comes when even our opponents must testify. This is a person who's upstanding and of good character. Of course, misunderstandings between pastor and flock are never hard to come by. And it appears from our passage that even the Apostle Paul was not immune to such misunderstandings. And what's happened here is that Paul has changed his plans. He once was planning to come to Corinth, but now he's delayed these plans. He's set them aside. And as he does this, right away his opponents jump at this chance to undermine the apostle, to undermine his message. He's not as strong as we thought him to be. That comes up again in chapter 10. His opponents jump at this opportunity of spreading all sorts of conclusions among the people in order to undermine his strength and authority and also to undermine the message that he carries. But the apostle writes to these believers, and he knows the truth of the matter. And so he comes and he applies to those Corinthian Christians very tenderly, passionately, autobiographically. And he applies to those who know him best and who can testify to his surety 
and his trustworthiness because his character reflects on the gospel. And so tonight, to the strengthening and the encouragement of the church, we consider a sure outcome despite shifting circumstances. And we'll consider three aspects of this surety that come to light in this passage tonight. And so consider first the surety of confidence. The surety of confidence. And only the Apostle Paul would take a change of travel plans and use it to bring a lesson in the gospel. But there's a surety here of our conscience that comes through in the Apostle's words. And for the Christians, there's this assurance in us that knows that there's coming a day when finally and at last all our foes will submit. And then, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is opponent and friend alike. Every knee will bow at that great and final last day before the judge of Jesus Christ. And we, when we say that every knee will bow, we do this not with the intent of religious jihad and holy war, but ours is to wear the sword of the Spirit. That's what breeds our confidence. And this is nothing other than the surety of the Word of God as it works in our lives and as messengers carry that Word and proclaim it to us in the ministry of the church. But there's coming a day, dear friends, for the vindication of our consciences, this faith that we hold dear when even the enemies of God will have to make an acknowledgement of the true way of things. But for now, we walk through a veil of tears, don't we? And now, we face similar circumstances to even the psalmist, to the apostle, where we have critics and enemies and opponents. And so for now, this understanding is given only to the Christian. And as the Apostle sets out his defense of his changed itinerary, he appeals here especially to those Christians who have known the clear conscience of Paul's conduct and ministry. He has changed his plans, but not to undermine his ministry. And what we find is that he reveals and he glories in his clear conscience. He has carried to them the same testimony, he says, that is clear and straightforward of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and ascended. He has not wavered to the left or to the right, but he has given them what they have understood. And the Corinthians have known this apostle as well. He's been deeply involved in his life so that they can speak not only to Jesus Christ, but also to his conduct. And they'll continue to carry that knowledge with them, says verse 14, even into that last day before the almighty judgment seat of God. There's a sort of contract dispute here that's at stake between the apostle and his congregation. And so right away, the apostle calls even his opponents as his witnesses. And he's left his life and his testimony as an open book before his hearers, and so he trusts that he'll be blessed for it, even in front of his critics. And so, friends, this should tell us something tonight about our own need 
for integrity and uprightness before our neighbor. Because as we live our lives, it's the very gospel of Jesus Christ that's on the line. And if somehow our testimony is found to be mismatched from what our life indicates, then the gospel is brought into question. And of course, this argument breaks down that the church is unacceptable because of the hypocrites who attend it. But at the same time, hypocrisy in the church should never be tolerated. And living one way and saying another thing is only to put a blemish that would cast doubt upon the gospel that we claim to be the very source of truth. And there's no room for false testimony when the validity of our Lord Jesus Christ is on the line. But our catechism teaches, question and answer 112, as you've been studying in the Ten Commandments, that lying and deceit are devices that the devil himself uses, and they would call down on me God's intense anger. There's a zeal that our God has for the truth. And the apostle reminds us of this according to his word and his conduct. And so we ought to give credence to this zeal as well by living our lives fully in accord with the truth that we confess. But of course, hypocrisy is going to persist so long as we're human and fallible, and our God understands this. But at the same time, there's a sanctifying work that's pressing on us. And it's going to present us no longer as hypocrites before the throne, but as blameless before the very throne of God on high. And we can trust in that. There's a church now that is certainly still impure. And so it's looking for that day when we'll be presented glorified and in full integrity. And in the meantime, we're looking for that renewal and the grace of a Savior who is sure, who is straight, who wavers neither to the right nor to the left, who works for our confidence. And we're making our need for this grace just as transparent to our neighbors as an extension of our true testimony. Friends, we are not good people apart from grace. And there's not a thing that sitting in these pews can do to bring our lives into full accord with the truth of the gospel. But here in these pews come weak and tender people, and they're given the means of grace. And these means of grace, the preaching of the word, the receiving of the sacraments, remind us of our surety. They work in our conscience that our surety, our faith, is true. And they remind us also that our consciences are shattered if they're not upheld by that rock who binds them. Ours is the way of being a witness. And this is going to take us to this church and to our families and also to wherever else we find ourselves situated in life. Because this testimony that we carry, and Paul brings this out as well, is a testimony that we carry to the world, to those who are watching us. But it's also especially a testimony that we carry for ourselves. And it's something in which we can take special joy because we know as the body of believers that we have confidence that our testimony of the gospel is being prospered. 
that it will be carried out even when we're not able and even when we're frail and perhaps in a place that's beyond our ability. And so we come here together as the church and we share our stories of God's continuing faithfulness at work in our lives. Even when circumstances seem to be pulled out from underneath us, still our God is surely working. And we strengthen each other in our weak times and we sing with the assurance of that great hymn, Just as I am, thou wilt receive. Wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. That's our confidence tonight. And we bind up each other's woes in times of trouble when we're unable to uphold all that we've testified. And we tenderly hold each other accountable in clinging to that truth that we hold dear. This truth that has been so carefully handed down to us. There are many who are claiming to be the church today who are fleeing from the truth which has been so long delivered. But we who are among the faithful are those who know that this historic faith is essential, which we claim. And the integrity of this faith is intact now, just as when it was first handed down to the prophets and to the apostles. And so we cling to this truth earnestly with all our strength, and we know our utter hopelessness that awaits us should this truth ever be abandoned. There's a heritage of integrity that bids us to come and follow. And this heritage will bring us, will persevere us, even to the very last day before the judgment throne of God, when even our critics will give credence to the faith which we profess. There's first the surety of conscience. And then notice, second, the surety of message. And now the testimony of the apostle is, not, is upheld not only by the sure knowledge of his chief critics, but more importantly, it's upheld by the sure work even of the triune God. And if you want a proof text for the Bible's understanding of the Trinity, then 2 Corinthians is a place where you can come again and again and hear the understanding of the one God in three persons is that He is in full accord with Himself to deliver us into the faith which He's appointed for us. That is the sure thing, though this world may shift. And here it's not only the Father who's enduring the surety of our final destination in Him. But it's the Father and the Son with the Holy Spirit who's working these things out for our good. And so, we say in ourselves with knowledge of this message, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And centrally, the message of Jesus Christ, the Son, is going to serve as the heart of our integrity and also of the integrity of the Godhead. And we know the integrity of our God and of His messengers because we know Jesus Christ as His living surety of the entire work of God. This Jesus, Hebrews tells us, is the author and the finisher of our faith. He will bring it to its completion. 
And he's the one who has objectively won our confidence in his earthly work and ministry. He's given the yes and the amen to all the promises of God that are instilled in his church. And now the Holy Spirit is even working these promises in each of our lives as the down payment, the deposit. You want to know, how do we know that we'll be delivered to our God, that we'll be declared innocent before His throne? It's because His Holy Spirit has been given to us as our comfort, but also as our surety, our down payment, the pledge that we carry in ourselves. We carry in ourselves the stamp of our God's approval, whose truth does not depend upon us and our limited ways. But this stamp stands in the one who himself is unchanging. When our plans change, he does not. It's the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the one whose word we herald to you in the ministry and the work of this church. So being attached to the Bible, being people of the book is important because the Bible is the word. And it centers upon the Word made flesh. And all 66 books are given to us by the inspiration of God. And so they give the whole revelation of one God who works one plan for His glory and our benefit in knowing that this message is true and not spoken out of two sides of the mouth. And this is encouraging then for us, isn't it? One God working one plan throughout all time when you and I can barely plan for one hour ahead of us. And this is our confidence that we hear tonight so that, again, as our catechism teaches, whether it's leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, still, in fact, all things come to us not by chance, but from our God's fatherly hand. And so we can take heart, even though we're limited and frail, barely able to plan, because when things seem to take a turn for the worse beyond our control, we can nevertheless remember the sure words spoken to us by our God's ambassadors. And we can retain an optimism that our Lord will work on our behalf. These trials are only temporary. And what remains to these troubles is a God who cares for us. That is unchanging. That is sure. And he's outside our circumstances, independent, unmoved. And yet he moves on our behalf. And this God whom we trust tonight doesn't say one thing and do another. But in Christ, He's delivered us. And so we can be certain that He will continue to do so for our benefit. And this is the object of what we preach and lead you in worship. And so we don't ever stand here then, your ministers who come to this pulpit with the concern that this word might pass away. If we had that concern, we might as well not even be here. But we come here tonight with the surety and the confidence that our God is working out all things for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose.
And so we take heart in circumstances. We take heart amid criticisms. And we're reminded of what we've heard, what we've understood of a risen and ascended Savior whose Spirit is working in us. And we can be sure that this one will greet us and stand as our sure mediator one day when we meet him at the great throne of judgment. And he will be the witness of our righteousness in him. There's a surety of conscience. There's a surety of message. And then third and finally, notice tonight the surety of motive. The surety of motive. And here's the pastoral payoff to all these things, to why the Apostle Paul would write to this church. And it's for confidence. The church and its ministers are not going to vindicate themselves only for their arrogance or their own glory. They will not do it for themselves. But they're going to do it for God's glory and for the building of our confidence in faith. And surety that you and I share is not for your pastor's ego. Look what I have made them sure of. But surety is for our ministry to you. And if we're going to call people to be confident amidst the shifting world, then we'll need that humility that's fitting for such a task. We may not gloat over you, but we work always with an eye that our God will just as surely bestow love upon whomever he chooses. And so there's a calculation to the apostle's decision to change his travel plans. And it's done with a view to the edification and the good of the saints. He chooses a severe letter to them instead of a painful visit. And so when these critics rise up, he's not torn down that these critics are spreading false rumors about him. But instead, he holds to his pastoral task, and he does it in order to comfort them, to bring them joy. He was wounded for their transgressions in a way, wasn't he? Following the example of his Savior. And he suffered the derision of some for a time in order that the greater part of the body might benefit in the end. And so he demonstrates the sacrificing heart of our Savior, willing to face the blows of his opponents so that the church might be built up into faith, so that the church might know that he is truly following our Lord Jesus Christ. And so are we, in a way, called to minister this way as the church. And so we notice again, then, the ministry of the church, the task of the church, that it's a ministry to call rather than to compel by force. And even the apostles are not appointed to lord over your faith. And if the apostles aren't called to lord over your faith, then certainly we may not as well. But ours is a ministry that is among you, that is with you, co-laborers, cooperators in the gospel, just as the Holy Spirit works out our faith in us. And so we call to submission, but we do it in a way of service. 
a submission that is not by coercion and compulsion, but by service. And ours is the ministry, then, friends, of Jesus to carry out. And there we see the pastoral motive in full view. And it's an eye that always looks out for the care of the flock. Even in its most difficult moments and trials, it's a ministry that moves in the hope of Christian joy rather than putting undue burden and grief upon the believers. And we do this ministry chiefly out of an overflow, a deep and ardent love, an agape love is the word that he uses here. This love is what will draw us towards seeking a full joy and celebration with you that even when this world shakes and is pulled out from underneath us, still our outcome is sure. And so we come here tonight together to rejoice in that. There's a tender care that the Apostle Paul has for the Corinthian believers. And may your pastor, may the one you call in the future, be ever desirous to follow into that example. That they would look to the ministry of a Savior and reflect that to you in ardent love. And may we also pay careful attention to the trustworthy words of Paul and of the God who gives those words to him. And may we be eager to give our God the due praise for his sure and lasting word. Amen. Let's pray.